This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. How many of you guys have seen um, uh, No Country for Old Men? That's good. Long time ago. Seen it several times. Yeah, it's a good one. This guy uh, wrote in asking this question where he was saying that uh, he's like, he's like, if you were in that situation where he shoots that antelope, you know, in the beginning. Yeah. Well, this case, like, so the, the, the writer Cormac McCarthy, who I think is the, and I'm not out on a limb by saying this, he's the, probably the greatest, greatest living American writer. Um, has his book, No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers made it into a film. Anyhow, in the beginning, the guy, the, the, the main character, shoots an antelope and hits it bad. Gets a bad hit on it. In the book, he explains the bad hit better where he drops short and a bullet come off the hard pan and, and hit the antelope bad. But he starts trailing the antelope, blood trailing it, and comes across a scene of a major shootout and dead bodies laying everywhere and a whole bunch of money in a suitcase. A guy recently wrote in saying, like, hey, what would you do in that situation? Do you feel as though you should have finished trailing that antelope? (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, I think that I would forget all about the antelope if all of a sudden I found 20 dead dudes mowed down in a machine gun gunfire and a blood trail leading off. You know. He wanted you to say, yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> That's so funny. I, think I can't. Uh, it's hard for me. You know, funny about Cormac McCarthy, like in that, a funny thing about Cormac McCarthy is that he uses so many esoteric, 
old-timey references that I feel as though most Americans, most of the time, don't know what Cormac McCarthy's talking about. I think you just got to skim past all the livestock, firearm, manufacturing references. Because I'm pretty, like, well-steeped in old-timey esoteric shit, and I have to look up stuff that he's talking about. In the end of that movie, and the book, we'll just talk about the movie, because I think more people have seen the movie than read the book. At the end of the movie, uh, the character played by Tommy Lee Jones is talking about a dream in which his father is on horseback and rides up through a pass ahead of him in the snow and says he was carrying a horn of fire. I know Kevin Murphy knows what a horn of fire is. Do you? Uh, just a torch, is it not? Or No. Powder horn. Oh, powder horn. Okay. Yep. You take, they take a powder horn, fill it full of embers in the morning, but you'd have to prick a little air hole in the powder horn just to keep some oxygen in there. And then at night, you dump you, you'd have enough ember to get a fire going. So to say he's carrying a horn of fire is he's got embers in a oh, sweet. embers in a powder horn with a pinhole board into it to keep the embers alive. I wasn't bringing it up for that reason. I was just bringing it up for the reason of uh, the guy's question because we do handle some questions. Another, you know, I want to do one more question because this was a good one for Yanni. A guy wrote in, he wants to be a hunting guide. How's he become a hunting guide, Yanni? Oh, boy. This, <laughs> let, me, let me introduce everybody first because the, the, the Latvian eagle. Giannis Patelis, Garrett Smith, Dirt Myth, Dirt Myth, <laughs> Walk hey, on tell Water. Him, tell them, tell them why your photography company is called Dirt Myth. I had a speech impediment when I was young, and I'd introduce myself as Dirt Myth as opposed to Garrett Smith, <laughs> <laughs> and it stuck. Now his new name is Walk on Water because yesterday he made the rookie error. Like uh, people who grew up around lakes, people who grew up around lakes assume a certain depth transition that happens from the bank outward. Like they'll extrapolate the pitch of the bank, say it's like how quickly it gets deep, and they'll be like, "And I'm six feet away from there." Assuming that that pitch is constant, I am in two feet of water. And so Garrett made that quick calculation and pitched over the side of a boat into a 12-foot hole in the mighty Ohio River. With camera gear. I have so many times seen on a river where someone will beach a boat and people just bail out. (laughs) Having no no idea that it's like a bottomless hell hole where they're staying. (laughs) So Dirt Myth. And then the mighty... um, Kevin Murphy, Paducah, Kentucky, Squirrel Master, what else? Engineer. (laughs) (laughs) All just all-around outdoorsman, I think. (laughs) All-around outdoorsman and hobby engineer. (laughs) And then Adam, do you, Mofat? What, Moffat? Moffat. But if you ask somebody, like, when you spell it, I tell them Mofat, and they're like, oh. But it's Moffat. But it's Moffat, yeah. Camera operator. What do you guys like to call yourselves these days? Like photographer? Yeah, camera operator. Because cinematographer kind of went away, right? That's like no, a film. But, yeah, it's more film. Yeah. I, I know I hate like videographer because I, I don't know that word sounds. Sounds cheap. like you're doing weddings. Right, right. So camera operator, I think. Shooter. But cinema, cinematographer. I say shooter, but no one knows what the hell you're talking about. I think that if I said I'm out with a shooter, 
people are going to think that I'm all the dude who's like shooting stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've done, you know, I've had people like, oh, I, I shot that. They're like, oh, so you shot it. I'm like, well, I, I filmed it. You know, I have to Film sometimes, it. yeah, f- sometimes clarify. So shot. your business card will say what on it? Uh, camera operator, DP, director of photography. No. I mean, you guys just operate, because people always ask like, about a camera guy on a show. You guys just like operate like independent freelance. Yeah, independent yeah. freelance. You fall, you fall in with something and it becomes more regular and then yeah yeah you have your like, let's let's call it clients you know so yeah you get more regular clients you work with the show they like your stuff do a bunch of work with them you know so the Lavian you'd say the Lavian Eagle is a client yeah yeah I would say the Lavian Eagle would be a client <laughs> I'll send him a nice card at Christmas the, you know, couple, there's a, you're gonna send him a card yeah but don't do it for Christmas. Do it for one of the Lavian Pagan holidays. <laughs> Send him a card. If you want to win yeah, him over and get I more get business. hundreds of cards from <laughs> all kinds of clients at Christmas, and it'll just be <laughs> if you lost wanna, in the mix. If you want to win with Yanni, send him something about like a lunar phase or send him a, um, <laughs> or send him a summer solstice or, or equinox kind of thing or Yanni Day because all Lavians are named Yanni, so there's Yanni Day. When's that? June 20th. Summer solstice. Oh, Yanni Day is the summer solstice? They do a combo? Yeah. Oh, okay. Did he build a bonfire Monday night? He was talking about that on the telephone with me. No, but they'll get a little molten lead and throw it in a bucket and then pull out the lead and then hold it up to a candle and cast a shadow on the wall and figure out what's going to happen next year. Whoa. Really? Good times. <laughs> what's going to happen? Gather the family around. Yanni don't like him eating too much sugar, but he don't mind him playing with molten lead. <laughs> 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 I think those days are changing. The, the new Latvian parents are rethinking that whole lead game. Gather around, family. I'm going to turn a blowtorch onto this here lead. <laughs> um, so we, there's two things. Mainly we're going to discuss catfish. Kevin Murphy's going to lead a conversation about catfish. But it's an interesting thing that happened to us. It was two weeks ago that we went and bear hunted. Um, we were bear hunting in Southwest Montana for black bears and we spent four days, five, five days, very solidly glassing. I mean like glass and good looking stuff where bears had been found in the past, um, and couldn't turn up a single black bear. And I feel like you wouldn't be able to do that again without finding a bear. But the interesting thing is we found, in four days, we found seven grizzlies. If you accept, and I'm not, uh, this isn't a loaded statement, but if you accept, man, I just, I just want to touch on this briefly, but this really, this subject really starts to make its own gravy and it's kind of hard to touch on it briefly. We were in an area that is known in, um, in, in people discussing habitat or ecology is known as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So it'd be, if you imagine like Yellowstone National Park is sort of the, the, the center of an area of the Northern Rockies, but not the Northern Rocky Continental Divide ecosystem, but, but the, a, a portion of the Rockies centered around Yellowstone National Park. You'd call it the GYE, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The greater Yellowstone ecosystem is kind of like about the size of Indiana. Within that, are you actually right now reading the the? I just wanted to make sure I wasn't drinking too much sugar. Oh. 
Giannis is reading the ingredients list on his beverage right now in the middle of my explanation. So we're in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's the size of Indiana. Now, hold that thought in your head for a minute and I'll explain something more. Uh, we're talking about grizzly bears here. So... In 1975, grizzly bears were listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act and given protection under the ESA. They had been subject to 150 or 200 years of, of a fairly focused persecution in the form of wide-open, unregulated hunting, meaning hunting, no bag limits, no seasons, um, poisoning, where guys were poisoning predators, you know, uh, like a poisoning trick would be that you would take a horse or, you know, a mule or any number of things and shoot it and then inject it with strychnine before its heart quit pumping. And and it would get in the vascular system, and so it would kind of distribute the strychnine all throughout the animal's body, and then whatever would come up and eat it would eat the strychnine. They would target coyotes and wolves, but you'd invariably kill all kinds of other things. So poisoning was going on of grizzly bears. A lot of habitat destruction, division of areas, breaking up different habitat, you know, with uh, barriers such as developments and roads led to problems. And after this long period of persecution, um, there were only about, maybe about 300 grizzly bears left in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so they got all grizzlies in the lower 48 got listed as threatened under the ESA. Now, you got 50,000 grizzly bears like in Alaska and Canada, and they've been threatened in Alaska and Canada. But the lower 48 was declared threatened. Grizzly bears were present on the landscape at the time of European contact. They were present on the landscape very roughly, from the Missouri River westward. So when they got listed as threatened, they got listed as threatened across their historic range in the lower 48. So everything from, you know, including, let's just say, including San Francisco was former grizzly bear habitat. So they're there. Years go by and we have, and years go by and we recover grizzly bears in two areas. One, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, which takes in Glacier National Park, Bob Marshall Wilderness, um, bears come up to thrive in that area, probably have reached carrying capacity of that area. The other area where they've recovered by many people's definitions of the word would be the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, so portions of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. You have now about 1,800 grizzlies, maybe 1,800, 2,000 grizzlies in the lower 48 in those three states, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming. What they did in order to try to, to try to manage this population is rather than treating all the grizzlies in the lower 48 as this one group, which you will never recover. Like we're never going to recover grizzly bears in San Francisco. We're just not going to have, like, we're not going to meet carrying capacity in the Bay Area because of human conflicts. So people within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages species that are listed under ESA protections as these are threatened or endangered, came up with this idea or this concept called distinct population segments where they broke the grizzlies 
of the lower 48 into these smaller management units. So you can start to think about management units in a more nuanced, detailed way. And there's five, I think five distinct population segments with the vast majority of the bears living in two of them, Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, unfortunately, right now, those two are not connected by a very viable corridor. So you don't have any genetic interplay moving from one to the other. Bears that are in the GYE or the Yellowstone area do not have a, 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 a protected, readily usable corridor to connect with bears that are, you know, a couple hundred miles away in another area. But you got a ton of bears in those two spots. So we were hunting the GYE and saw seven in four days. If you accept the population estimate of approximately 700 grizzlies in the GYE, which is a very contentious estimate. Basically, it's a number that everyone on both sides of the issue that I'm about to present to you, it's a number that everyone will agree on. Because there are people who find advantage in the argument that there are fewer, and there are people who find advantage in the argument that there are many, many more. And you can imagine which side holds each viewpoint. But they agree on the 700 figure. If you accept that figure, we glassed up 1% of the entire grizzly bear population in four days in a, in a landmass the size of Indiana. Um, what just happened, and I wrote, a, I, I wrote an op-ed about this in the New York Times a few weeks ago. What just happened is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just came out and said this. In a decision supported by the man who is in charge of recovering grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, who works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they said, we're going to take this distinct population segment and declare it recovered because it's met our recovery objectives, which have included a minimum of 500 bears. People agree that that was a number that was a good number. That's, they've, that's been going, they've met that every year for 12 years. 48 females with cubs. They've met that for uh, over a decade. So they want to deal what we call delist that portion, the GYE only, delist the bears of this Indiana-sized hunk of land. They're getting tremendous amounts of blowback on this because once you delist something, it goes back to state management. So, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, the state fish and game agencies, would have to draw up or will have to draw up a management plan for the bears in their states. And that management plan will need to be approved by the feds. Once that happens, they will assume management of grizzlies the same way that they assume management of all other large mammals within those states. So these states are already managing, including but hardly limited to mountain goats, bighorn sheep, black bears, mountain lions, wolverines, yeah, you name a couple. Elk, deer, deer white tail deer, it's all kinds of upland birds. They manage all of it. Mm-hmm. They would also be managing grizzly bears. I think it's good to note, too, that management and management plan doesn't necessarily mean hunting plan no because everything has a management plan even things that don't hunt have a management plan yeah so 
But here's the, the catch, though. The catch, though, is that it is very likely that Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho are going to use hunting as, in their vernacular, a management tool, meaning that they're going it, to it, – it's, it's not inevitable. It's highly likely that they're going to use hunting to some degree to minimize human-grizzly conflicts because there are areas where – most people who have a stake in this agree that just are not going to work as grizzly habitat. Okay. Subdivisions are not going to work as grizzly habitat. Some mountain ranges or some Island mountain chains, they feel it's not plausible that you're going to have grizzlies there because the potential for human grizzly conflict in the form of livestock depredation and human casualties are high and they're going to discourage bears from moving into those areas and a tool they'll use is hunting. Cause right now drugging and relocating a bear is very expensive. And once you get a problem bear that's habituated to humans, it's very difficult to, 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 to prevent them from doing it. You can move them into the middle of the Bob Marshall wilderness area and they tend to have like a high level of recidivism where that bear will, once he's got it in his head that human human occupied locations are a good place to find food he just is going to continue finding that spot so they'll they'll move a bear again and again and again bears in those areas and bears like that are likely to be there's a good chance that those bears are going to be subject to hunting or they're going to try to use hunting in a way that would target those bears even to the point where it might almost be like a hit list but rather than having government agents go out and and drug it and move it they would have a hunter who would be awarded some kind of permit through a lottery system would get a permit to hunt bears in some area in a hope to do that. The prospect of hunting is what leads people to really feel as though we should not delist grizzlies because you want to talk about charismatic megafauna, they're on top of the list. Um, back when we had wildlife calendars, they always made every wildlife calendar. People look at them and they, and they feel um, a spiritual kinship to grizzlies and are very opposed to the idea of hunting them because we haven't hunted them since 1975 um, in the lower 48. I don't know. Something magical happens at the border where grizzlies become they're, they're a hunted thing, but people just have a hard time getting their idea around it. Another criticism of delisting is that um, – a lot of people pay a lot of money to go to Yellowstone and see a grizzly, and they feel that if you were going to hunt them, you could potentially put you could put at risk that tourism drive. But here's the thing. Here's, here's my, my stance on this. When we listed bears in 1975, you go in and say to all these state agencies and different stakeholders, you go in and say, we're going to list these bears with the, with the object of recovering them. Because the Endangered Species Act is meant to be a thing where things go on it, we recover them, and delist them. There's a process for all of this. We've listed about 2,000 animals, 2,000 species, plant and animal species. We've recovered less than 2%. Okay? Some of those things, we've removed more from the list because we removed them from faulty data meaning thinking there were fewer than they were, and then they get listed, and then we realize there's a lot more. 
things that have been taken off the list for taxonomic reasons where you might have been thinking you were looking at a distinct subspecies and then you learn that it's not, in fact, a distinct subspecies and, and that it's something that maybe on an island is very rare but it's very abundant on the next island over doesn't warrant ESA protection, so it could get removed. But as far as like actually recovering something, for instance, the peregrine falcon, the bald eagle, um, are, are examples of this. As far as actually recovering something, there's been very few species, less than 2%. Um, but the grizzly in the greater Yellowstone eco- ecosystem has for well over a decade reached recovery objective. But now people want to use the ESA as a tool to protect their favorite animals from any threat of human exploitation. So they're not even looking at the wording of the ESA. They're just saying, oh, I really like them. I like looking pictures at the, of them. I feel as though they're very cute and cuddly. And if it if removing them from endangered species protection means they might get shot, I think we should change the entire meaning of and usage of the ESA in order to protect my favorite animals from human exploitation. Is kind of what we're up against. Anyhow, none of this really has anything to do with anything from your perspective as a listener because the public comment period just ended on this plan. I feel that the plan will move forward and I'll make this prediction and I'm not like pulling, this isn't me. I mean, this is, it's almost a factual matter. The feds will move to delist grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and it will spend a decade in federal court because what I regard to be fringe wildlife groups are going to go and sue the federal government and cost state agencies and federal agencies tens of millions of dollars. They will enrich a handful of lawyers in order to put off delisting, and it will go on to make the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, which is an extremely valuable tool and a very helpful tool, they will increase public disapproval of the act, frustration with the act, Western ranchers and landowners and other people and and people from fish and game agencies will more and more feel as though their efforts are not rewarded, that the carrot is constantly moved farther away from the horse, that recovery is this slippery, highly objective notion that just gets moved around and it will increase some level of animosity towards the animals themselves. What do you think, Yanni? Well, I think the, the the main point that I try to tell everybody too is that w- with all that going on, they will not probably save a single grizzly bear's life. No, because all these bears that turn into problem bears that go out of that that core management area, they they get classified as problem bears or w- whatever they get classified as, and they get taken out. I mean, some of them are drugged and moved, but there is that threshold of whatever it is, x amount of bears that. Basically, they're allowed to kill when they get, you know, outside of that area, and they, they start to there's human conflict or they're you know hit by cars. So, in the end, they're not helping the bear out, you know. And by and the other thing about it is they can't lower the bear population. Like you think that anyone who's struggled to get bears recovered wants them to go back on the endangered species list. So they've already drawn up a mortality threshold, which includes everything right up to natural cause deaths. Mm-hmm the number can't go below a set number. Like, let's say you decide 
It can't go below 550 bears. And I don't, the number's not decided. Can't go below 550 bears. That would mean it got relisted. Do you think anyone who's trying so hard to delist bears and take some of the regulatory burden off of state game agencies who do a phenomenal job of managing wildlife, do you think they want to see them go back on the list? Of course, of course not. So this idea that they're going to delist them and then go out and eliminate them from the landscape would be like kind of a classic example of, of you know shooting yourself in the foot. Now, there's some complexities that I don't, because I want to talk about catfish more. But there's some complexities that are worth considering here. I have a friend. We're kind of more email buddies than anything else, but he's a hunter. He's a fisherman. He's involved heavily in wildlife politics. You met him, that uh, Kit Fisher. Maybe you haven't met him. I don't think so. Anyways, the guy in Montana comes from a legacy of conservationists. Like, he has some concerns. He... He he's, he he's not that he just like categorically um, opposes the idea of delisting, but in in conversations we've had, he's brought up some legitimate things. Montana Fish and Game, you go to their website and read it. Like if you look at their grizzly plan, their long term grizzly plan would be that you would establish a corridor for bears in the glacier area or northern continental divide area to have genetic interplay with bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Not just bears, but you'd have a, a, a corridor that could serve for all manner of animals that are imperiled now or may become imperiled in the future. You can move mountain lions between those populations, wolves between those populations, wolverines between those populations. Um, now, you go look at Montana Fish and Gains website, they talk about the viability of that corridor. If you talk about delisting and they're going to start trying to remove bears that they might use hunting as a tool to control to, to control human grizzly conflicts, is that going to wind up contradicting efforts to allow bears to have genetic interplay between those two populations? I'm in a situation where I, I strongly support delisting because I strongly support state management of wildlife. And I do not like the idea of people using just emotionally emotional based arguments to take management decisions out of the tool, out of the you know to take management decisions out of the jurisdiction of professional wildlife managers and to put it into the jurisdiction of a lot of people who have never even laid eyes on one of these bears. Um, but at the same time, I strongly support the idea of that corridor and. And having viable, thriving populations, wolves, bears, wolverines, mountain lions on these landscapes. So, yeah, I hope these state management plans come in. um, And I hope that they are not a little too reactionary, overly eager to control depredation on livestock and allow for and, and kind of prove as I believe that they will prove again to the world that state management of wildlife is the best system ever been demonstrated on the face of the earth. Um, and it has the interest of the people and, and best serves the interests of the people. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. 
that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Um, catfish. Kevin Murphy, will you break down for us what catfish live here in Kentucky? Well, this week we targeted uh, three species. Uh, the blue cat, we were pretty very successful at, at uh, obtaining some, can several. I, can I interrupt you, Kevin? Let me set the stage. We're down in Kentucky. All kind of famous rivers flow through here. The Ohio, 
meets the Mississippi not far from here, the Cumberland River, Tennessee River. Give me some more famous rivers. Uh, Clark's River is a smaller river. The Green River. Everybody knows the John Prime's song. Oh. Oh, Lord, take me back to Muhlenberg County. Down by the roar, the Green River flows. That's here? That's here. It flows in the Ohio. We didn't fish that one, though. No, it was probably up about uh, 80 to 100 river miles from where we ate catfish yesterday. Yeah. So years ago, I was uh, doing some bow fishing on the Ohio, and I ran into some guys who were doing something called poke polling, where they were fishing catfish with set lines, where they'd jab a pole into a bank and hang a line with a bluegill baited on there, and then you come around and watch and see if the pole's bucking and you caught a catfish. I was done hunting squirrels with Kevin Murphy last winter, explaining this to him, and Kevin got to talking about limb lining. So we made plans to come back down and fish catfish and do other fun activities in the hot-ass Kentucky sun. Triple-digit heat index. Yeah. (laughs) And so now, with all that set up, talk about the three catfish you guys got around here. We've got the big blue cats that uh, are out in the main channel of the river, uh, the largest species uh, in Kentucky uh, and in the the U.S. Yeah, the biggest, yeah. biggest catfish, catfish in the United I States. I think maybe Kentucky State Records, 120 pounds. Don't quote me on it, but, but it's the over least, 100. the least known catfish, because channels and flats are everywhere. Uh, yes. In most parts yeah. of the world, I, th- yeah. I find that people know what the hell a blue catfish yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much, and they like what? It's like main channel, main channel out in out in the out in the deeper water, uh, uh, feed on cut bait, uh, just opportunists, whatever's out there. You know, they're they're pretty much after, and they're like a suspended feeder too. Yes, yeah, they feed up. You know, they feed up, and, and from um, the brighter the sun, the better off they are. You know, a lot of fish like walleye. If there's bright sunlight, they go down deeper. Uh, hard, you know. They're not surface feeders, but uh, the blue cats are. The sunshine pops out, and I've been out there many a times. Be a little bit overcast, all of a sudden the sun pops out, heating up. I don't know if it's plankton drawing bait fish up to the surface or what's going on, but that kind of triggers the blue cats to start feeding when it gets real hot and sunny. What was the biggest blue you ever caught? Uh, right at 50 pounds, the one I showed you from last year. We got into a, a creek that was rising water was coming up it was triggering the blues to come in and feed on earthworms um my friend and i brian womble we caught the 48 50 pounder and then the the smaller one in there was probably right at 40 pounds you know kind of back to back on a on a on a uh, you said those blue catfish were packed full of red worms they were full of red worms yes yes just his stomach was was giant from from red, red so worms. the water's coming up and the red worms are getting drowned out and coming out of the ground out of the ground yes like they'll do when you leave your garden holes on for on accident you realize there's all kinds of drowned worms laying there afterward yep. it triggers the fish a lot of fish to feed bluegill the shell crackers will come in uh some of these nicely manicured uh, lake lawns that uh, when the water gets up into those starts driving out uh, uh, earthworms shell crackers come up and feed like like crazy I'm, i i have not been fortunate enough to hit one of those yet but uh, it, but happens. it happens. It happens. Was the uh, the mulberry feeding cat? Was that blue? The way that he came to the service when <laughs> we saw those were channels. Okay, I'm pretty so sure. they will occasionally yeah. also come up. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah that's channels. interesting. We were underneath. I'm going to do a quick uh, digression here. We were messing around the mulberry gang. Yeah, getting ready to set it. I don't know what we were doing. 
But, yeah, the Lavian Eagle. Oh, no, you guys are still <laughs> setting lines. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I had my foot on the old trolling motor, so I worked down the bank, and I had a little crappie rod in my hand, and I was working the bank, and I look over and just happen to be looking in this little eddy, and a mulberry hits the water, and about maybe a half full second later, up rises a big – I thought – I didn't know for sure what kind of fish it was. Yeah, I thought yeah. it could have been a carp, could have been a catfish, but it was a good – size fish two feet plus maybe three feet and he just sipped that mulberry off the surface like a brown trout eating a mayfly and then we had that trout line under there and all the hooks that sat under that mulberry tree had a fish on them yep so the next catfish flatheads flatheads is to me kind of the top predator of the catfish prefers live bait uh, um, very good very good meat um, like I said, um, this time of year, I think when I, we started out, I told you guys, well, so this is the spawning season. Uh, the, the boys around here that like to tickle and noodle, hand grab for fish, they've got uh, lots of bathtubs, concrete vaults, pieces of pipe, anything that I hold a catfish, they have around the edge of the lakes. Is it legal to go out and place infrastructure? To lure in flatheads, you Can know. You explain that first. Okay, uh, this time of year, uh, the flatheads are in the breeding mode, and the males help find nest and guard nest for the females. So they they're looking for holes up in the riverbank, uh, sunken logs that are hollow, like beaver 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 entrances, beaver entrances somewhere where they can get in, where they feel safe, where they can lay the eggs. And they pretty much, their feeding activities somewhat shut down, and they're interested in mating and, and finding a place to mate. And um, what um, generations of hand grabbers have found is they put in artificial structures to imitate uh, a, a sunken log, basically. We, we talked to the... the uh, a commercial fisherman yesterday, you know, this his he's got uh, what did they said sixteen hoop nets out there, and they imitate a log. Also, they will coat those nets with uh, black tire and the hoops on them too. So when it's underwater, it feels like looks like a, a, a sunken log. And the catfish go into the hoop nets, and then they get caught because it's got two throats in there that keeps them from. From, uh, yeah, it's like a minnow. Like, it's the same idea as a minnow trap, funnel, yes. a funnel mouth yes. minnow trap. Yeah. But like I said, getting back, the, the local boys, what they do is around the shoreline, gravelly areas, they'll place some type of infrastructure to house a catfish. They come around, someone will dive down, kind of reach around, fill in there, and if they feel a cat in there, then they come back up, and then it's kind of like a two-partner deal there. One guy will stand put his feet in front of the hole where the catfish enters to keep him from going out. The other person dives down in the water anywhere from, you know, four foot to, to six foot depth. And he will run his hand in there and let the catfish bite him. Yes. And yeah. Everybody knows how painful and raspy uh, a catfish bite is. There's a, uh, one of the guys that I know, he's about six, eight, big, long gangly guy i saw him it's been a couple of years ago and his hand arm from me like his shoulder down to his fingertips it looked like somebody had taken a wood ras to it i said what in the world you've been in oh i've been catfishing <laughs> and i'm thinking you know 
I might run my hand up into a hollow log or hollow tree to pull out a rabbit, but uh, <laughs> something that's got got a like a catfish, nah. I, I'll do. I'll take a bang stick stick down there or something, a sharp stick, harpoon, whatever. But no, I'm not going to sacrifice my trigger finger, yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and there's other critters that could get you right. Snap. Or- there is. You know, occasionally it could be a snapping turtle down there. It could be a beaver, whatever. You know, I haven't heard of anybody being mangled by that but it's that possibility but the catfish bites you and what you do you 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 don't the the hardest thing to say that you that you do is the automatic reflex of pulling back so you've got to mind over matter type deal you've got to leave your hand in their mouth and let them bite you then they kind of relax a little bit and then you run it up and you hook it over their gill plate Jody's boy, Joe. He's a he's a noodler. I think a sixty pounder flathead is the biggest that he's he's pulled out. Of course, he's a big gangling boy there. Yep. Yeah, but you you pull it out, you get him right there, and you bring him to the surface there. Do you no, ca- do we you, are kids. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you catch bigger catfish by noodling as opposed to like rod and reel or the other ways or like? Uh. Is that kind of the lure? You, you typically are going to catch a bigger yeah, catfish you, if you put your that's, hand that's in it. Right? Yeah, that, you know, that's what everybody is, whether rod or reel or whatever there. Right. You can catch just as big with, with a rod reel. You know, you got these target areas. You know, you're making, when you're out there fishing, yeah, you've got some fishing hoes where they may be, whatever, but you know you can come out there. Maybe you've got 50 boxes out or sets. I don't know, really know what they call those. I've never been on, on one of those trips. But you've got 50, so you go out there and run of those and so you you know you may have five or six catfish in those 50 or if you're out there fishing, you know, just kind of fishing here or there. So it's kind of like, you know, you're building a home for them. It's yeah. a holiday inn, you know, <laughs> coming for the catfish. Yeah. So, you know, when I was young in the lake I grew up on in the spring, bullheads would you know do the same exact thing. But they would go in and find cracks and seawalls, any kind of thing. And we would even put out little areas that we knew about areas. You just take a couple of three-hole bricks and stack three-hole bricks up, knowing that a bullhead is going to veer in there and set up shop. But what we would do, I mean, you know, these things are uh, big ones, a couple pounds, nothing like a flathead. But we would just go around to those spots and just take a little Clio like a little spoon with a treble hook on it and just a a hunk of line and just dingle it in front of their face or dingle it down in the mouth of the hole and they would come out and grab it. I remember one night we went out, we'd go out with flashlights. I remember one night we went out and had nine of them, like big bullheads, just by doing that. And I'd even done it where they were down so deep that we would get a snorkel and mask and just have some string on your hand with a thing and dive down and jiggle it in front of there into his little crevice catch them and then just haul them up and throw them in the boat on the end of a hook and uh, i just thought it was like something completely unique to but on a on a much giant scale like from going from two pounds to 40 pounds that instead of hanging a little cleo you're just sticking your hand (laughs) i mean because they wouldn't hit it like they were hungry they'd hit it like they're pissed yeah and that's territorial i think is what it is they're protecting their little turf you know they don't want any, anything to get in there near their eggs, so it's that's a territorial response, and that's what the flatheads pretty much do. Yeah, because you could yeah. do it and sting his lip with the yeah. hook, and then do it again and sting his lip with the hook, and do it again and then hook him. Like he just kept slashing at it. Something eating for food. Uh, I, I was one time up on the north slope of the Brooks Range, like on the Arctic Plateau, leading out to the Arctic Ocean, and I was fishing for grayling in these little streams, and the streams would be like riffle 
you know, like there'd be like a little riffle in a hole and a little riffle in a hole. Every hole would have a grayling in it, like in a territory, like a fish in there, not letting anybody in there. And you'd land a fly on it, and he couldn't help himself but hit it. If you stung that fish's lip with a hook, he'd go down to the bottom of that hole, and there was no way in hell he was going to come up and hit something again. But it was funny because you could test his memory. Could you come back to that fish 24 hours later, and however a fish's head works, you'd land a fly on it, he'd come up and nail it. So he's like, you could be like, an hour is not enough for a grayling to put that out of his mind. 24 hours, he's like, like what are the chances that's going to happen again? <laughs> or like whatever switches in his mind. It was like you could sort of find out like how he, how he perceived danger and how he perceived the path, like what the passage of time is to a grayling. Because if I stun gunned you right now, and I walked up to you tomorrow with a taser, <laughs> if there's I no way you're going to stand there and let me tase you again. <laughs> right? That's correct. Maybe 10 years later, 10 years later, I might walk up to you and tase you. I probably wouldn't let you tase me in the first place. I've been around those things all of my life. It's so uh, it's a danger, Will, Will Robertson, danger. So, so uh, that's like getting into a bottle of whiskey too hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still have a hard time with Canadian Hunter. From, from me and my brother Danny being like in our teens sitting on the bank of the White River at the Hesperia Dam, um, I still can't go near Canadian Hunter. The hell is that stuff, anyways? I have no idea. Never you know what I'm talking it. about? No, nope. it's like one of those Northern Michigan. Thing. No, it's one of those things where they mix like really shitty whiskey with sugar. Oh. There's a bunch of them. Southern Comfort. That's a that's cough medicine down here in Kentucky. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was raised out. I still can't drink that stuff because of what you're talking about. Getting stung by Southern Comfort. <laughs> uh, did you have more right now? You cool? I'm cool, Adam. Cool. Dirt. I'm curious the third one because I can't remember it. Oh, we right. haven't covered it yet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Channel Cat. Well, no. Oh, I was going to say, don't tell because oh. some. But if he can't remember Channel Cats. <laughs> I was just trying. <laughs> he thought he was one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went new one. You guys didn't know, but. All right, so break down channels. Channels are like, by far, there, are, there have to be, if you put all the channels in North America in a pile, and put all the flatheads in North America in a pile, and all the blues in a pile, the channel pile is going to be, by a magnitude of out of hundreds, bigger than any other pile, right? I, probably, probably so. I would say they're the most common by far of, of any, any catfish that's out there. And it's the most commonly yeah. one for aquaculture. Yes. Like when you go in and buy like some cheap-ass catfish sandwich, and it's from a pond catfish, they can do other ones, but... Probably a channel. Probably a channel, most likely. Most likely. The smaller of the, of the catfish, other than we get down into the, the very smallest catfish in Kentucky is a mad tom. A little bitty catfish, maybe three or four inches long. Um, in some of the, the backwater estuaries and swamps is where the, where the mad tom. Yeah, and all your bullheads are in the catfish family, yeah, too. Yeah, right. Bullhead being bigger, but the mad tom being the very, very yeah. small and, and not a, as far as any, I know nobody's ever goes fishing for mad toms out yeah. there. But the big three. The big three. Channels, flats, and blues. blues. We got uh, the flatheads, and then we've got the channel. So break down the channel for me. A uh, smaller fish uh, noted with uh, specks up and down its body. Uh, when you skin them, 
uh, it's got a yalla streak that immediately turns some people off. And yeah. as we were talking about, I trim it. I trim it away until yeah. I learned yesterday you don't need to trim it. Yeah, away. smaller fish, you just leave it in there, and I've never been able to tell any difference. Um, predominantly, people call uh, the the channel fiddlers, but any small catfish can be in the category of a fiddler. But yeah, but usually so let me let me let me discuss that because I never heard that term. So you told me how a fiddler in Kentucky lingo. I thought it was Kevin Murphy lingo, but I realize now it's like Kentucky. A fiddler's a small catfish. Small catfish. Now, we had a gentleman yesterday show me on his cutting board a mark where he has such a high level of specificity about what a fiddler is. doesn't matter what species it is, but if it if he puts his tail at the end of his cutting board and its head is shy of a mark... That's a fiddler. And he prides himself on the uniformity of his fiddlers. Where he doesn't like them that are much smaller than that, he doesn't want to use them. He wants his fiddlers to hover right around that specific mark. And the other name for a fiddler is a... Little dinky catfish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 I schooled fryer. you on this. Whole fryer. A whole fry. Not a whole fryer, but a whole fry. And, and I didn't learn that term till like uh, four or five years ago. Somebody was talking about... Oh, there's some whole fries. We're going to have some whole fries, I'm you thinking. You potatoes. Uh, hell, I didn't know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> a whole fry. And they finally said, oh, you know, take, take a whole small catfish and fry it. I said, you mean a fiddler? Uh, no, it's a whole fry. <laughs> yeah. You know, that the, was their term on it, where you just take the entire catfish, chop it, you skin it, uh, cut its head off, leave the fins on it, and, and fry it up. Crispy. A lot of people like eating the tail fin of that. Uh, it's got a real mild flavor. I, I like the fiddler catfish. You're you picking the meat. Yeah, you just take a fork and just pick it off, and you've got this, uh, you know, Fred Flintstone skeleton when you get done. Uh, you don't have to worry about bones. Uh, um, you know, as far as small kids and things, probably shouldn't do it, but there's really not any bones that come out with the meat there. It's yeah. nice, crispy skin. It's got a very unique flavor, not strong whatsoever. Uh, you know, when you get into the bigger catfishes, when you have to start trimming to get that strong, stout flavor out of them, there's some some things on the catfish that you, as my friend Leon says, you take a not-so-good fish and make a really, really good fish out of it. That's the thing I learned most out of all the hanging out and catfishing we've done the last few days is the importance of properly cleaning and trimming catfish fillets and when when i was young we would now and then get into these big ass flatheads doing other stuff we'd catch big flatheads and we had them in our heads they were inedible and i don't say that about much but we had in our heads they were pretty inedible because we just fillet them and skin them and not trim them and it was the muddiest nastiest or as your friend leon said you don't want that in your mouth (laughs) and it's trimming that son of a bitch. Trimming and processing. Processing. Even trimming. after we got it, we got it all trimmed up, laying there in a in a bucket, floating in the water. All kinds of fat still there. A lot of blood there. So it, it you you've got to go through, like I said, all the processes. You have to to clean it. You have to trim it, and the chilling it down too. That's another thing that, that's new. Uh, makes the trimming process. You can kind of makes the fat congeal on it you can kind of feel it better see it better and then after you get it get it trimmed out cut all the red meat 
that blood vein that's running down the middle. Then you put it in the in the the bucket of water and let it soak for you know or have a have a misting water uh, hose on it, a slight trickle. And as we all saw, it started out a bloody red mess. Yep. With a, it was with like you're it was like you're rendering it was like you're rendering fat too, yes. because fat's rising up yep. out of there. Yeah. So after a while, uh, it starts clearing up, and at the very end, you know, the water looks clear enough that you could take a, a, a drinking glass just down there and dip it out, and you could drink the water. And if you smell that meat at that point in time, it doesn't smell. Dude, it's gorgeous. Fishes. It doesn't smell like it smells like fresh meat. No fish smell on it whatsoever. So, yeah, we've talked to some leading, what I would regard as some leading catfish experts in the last couple of days, being like guys that handle thousands and thousands of pounds of catfish for commercial sale and, and other things and supplying fish fries and lifetime devoted to catfish. And the the message I got is two things on a catfish taste like shit, fat and blood. When you get a muddy piece of fish or an off piece off piece of fish because you're getting fat or blood in your mouth, catfish fat and blood. Catfish flesh, one of your friends, Leon, said if there's a criticism of it, he didn't put it this way, but he said if there's a criticism of it, it's too mild. Yes. In that, you need to, a good catfish guy is a guy that's good at seasoning. Compare that to a good piece of tuna. Good piece of tuna the, the the less you do to it, the better, right? Because it carries it, its own perfect flavor. Or like a good oyster. You don't want to do anything to a good oyster. He's saying a good piece of catfish properly trimmed is a, it's a platform on which to apply flavors. It's like a clean slate on which to apply the kind of flavors you like. It's that mild. So in getting the fat off, the fat, once you do your filet, you got fat rides, the fat rides between the skin and the meat, and that's an important area to get off. And you got fat that rides along the belly and fat that rides along the top. So they'll pull a fillet off. Like imagine, like lay, to try to visualize this, lay your hand flat out on a table or on your leg or whatever, and like lay your left hand down and look at it. And imagine you're looking at a fillet. You want to remove, as you view your left hand laying flat, you want to remove half of your pink the outer half of your pinky finger down to your wrist and you want to remove the outer third of your thumb from the thumbnail down to your wrist get rid of that and then the the face of the fish that lies between the fish's skin and the flesh get rid of anything red let's when we uh cut the skin off the catfish, we don't try to ride down on the skin. Yeah. We do a sawing motion, and we cut a lot of the red meat off. Yeah, they as, float as we the go. blade. Yes. I always skin fish by basically scraping that son of a bitch, and it comes out like uh, clean. But these guys, yeah, they're floating the blade down there and leaving skin and fat in the red muscle. On that piece of skin. Yeah, rather than like scraping the skin and then shaving that junk away. It was like intuition for him, like muscle memory. He showed us a knife that he had skinned so many fish with that the, he wore a bevel into the handle. This is the angle that you want to go go with. I like too, Leon said, in regards to 
you know, using all the meat you have on them, the stuff you're trimming's not waste because it's because it is waste. It's waste. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah not, he goes. It's people food. say you're uh, wasting meat when you trim waste. it, but you ain't wasting anything. <laughs> <laughs> waste is waste, and that's that's you yeah. know, you, you take a not so good fish and make an excellent fish out yeah. of it. Now, Adam, talk about your wife here for a minute. <laughs> How long do we got? No, <laughs> so explain her gripe of fish. You know, she just doesn't like the texture. I think because she was brought up in a desert. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> well, that's what's so interesting because I think even from my background, I grew, we both grew up in Utah. And I think a catfish, we catfished as kids. You know, we throw a piece of steak over a boat and hang it out all night and then wake up in the morning and reel a catfish in. And they just don't, I mean, unfortunately, they just don't look, when you pull a catfish out of the water, they typically just don't look appetizing. Does a uh, sausage look appetizing? Coming from a hog that's laying in a mud? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, but that's a good point. No, but I think that's just See that animal laying in that pile of shit? (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be good later. (laughs) But I think that was the how we looked. But you pull other fish out, like you know, trout yeah. or, or yeah, 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 they no, look no, a little better. I understand. And so I think coming out here, I was like, okay. I mean, I've had blackened catfish before, and I like it. But I was like, I was kind of curious. And then like watching you guys trim the meat, it's 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 almost clear, how, like in color, like how white it is, and yeah. it looks amazing, dude. It it's the whitest. Amazing. It's the whitest. If you laid that meat from a blue cat. If you laid it on a piece of printer paper, you wouldn't be able to see the sun. You wouldn't be able to see the thing. It's 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 snow white. I mean, snow yeah. white. Just it's unbelievable. so weird to see catfish flesh like that. Yeah, it's and that looks appetizing. But your wife, <laughs> yeah, God bless her, doesn't like fish. And but it's not. But she wouldn't even like that fish. Yeah, she doesn't like any fish. Doesn't like and she doesn't like anything like crustaceans or yeah anything from the sea she just doesn't like but it's a texture thing yeah i don't but know you're a water-based dude though i i know it's tough so what does she eat she she loves meats and from stuff from the land yeah she i she just like tuna, birds? tuna or swordfish you won't eat no i won't touch it and i trust me i've tried will she eat eel <laughs> <laughs> no I don't think she'd eat eel. <laughs> that's pretty fishy <laughs> yeah yeah but you're like it's this yeah and, and, and I love her. I never met her, but I love her. <laughs> I'd marry her. But it's just, uh, so she's not going to eat that. Like, if you cook that up for her, she's like, yeah. Could you uh, trick her? Because, see, that's the interesting thing. Is what are you going to tell her it is? Yeah, that, beef? Yeah. <laughs> it's the lightest beef. beef. It's pork. <laughs> the lightest chicken you've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's why probably she doesn't like any of it, because it's a very unique texture that couldn't be imitated by anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I... Yeah, I, I think what you need to do maybe make a chowder, a soup. But it's like a lot at this point. It's psychological. Yeah. No, because well, we even here, we, here's what you do. Here's here's I was a real finicky eater growing up. Well, yeah, Kevin grew up eating nothing but beans <laughs> and cornbread. <laughs> we were out one uh, Saturday when I was young. I could eat my weight every day, maybe twice a day. But uh, I was kept some of my friends uh, cut tobacco, and his mom was a. The most excellent old timey cook in the world. Man, what we'd eat country ham over there. Steve loves country ham. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best country ham. They had th- three or four apple trees. They had a big orchard, and she'd cook up some apples and stuff. By country and, ham, man, you know what it means? <laughs> if you if you took a ham and and somehow made it saltier than salt. <laughs> 
Yeah, can you really quick <laughs> explain country ham? Uh, country ham is the uh, American variety of a uh, prosciutto ham from Italy. And what that, you do? That statement, it's almost offensive. He said that like 10 times. It's almost offensive, but okay. But uh, the early pioneers had no refrigeration, you know, to, so when you did hog killing in the, in the fall of the year, you go out and you saved everything but the squeal from the hog. You know, they made head cheese out of the, 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 the head of the hog, uh, make souse, uh, pig's feet. Cracklings, you rendered, you know, rendered, pon, rendered no Ponhaus. This is a term in Virginia. Maybe it's souse. You just render it all out and then mix cornmeal in there and make like a like a cornmeal bread that's full of jowl meat and and man, I wish my buddy Ronnie was here because that's his favorite food. Oh, I, I want to make it bad. I don't know that they one. Process the hawk. Okay, and all the trim and scrap and everything they cook down into a gelatinous. That's souse. Okay, so then they stir in cornmeal and corn cook it in there, and you eventually wind up with like a, like a. It's a big loaf. It'd be like head cheese. I don't know. It, it's like head cheese, but cornmeal. And then you slice that cornbread and fry it in a pan. They call it panhas. Like a soy burger. I don't know. A little, little, little bit of meat and some soybeans. Anyways, Ronnie Bain, it's like, he didn't know about it until he moved to Virginia. Ponhas. And their that hams up. in Virginia are so salty. That they don't, you don't get them off the refrigerated section. They got the things in a burlap sack laying on the shelf of the grocery store. A desiccated ham in a burlap sack next to like the canned goods. But he likes pawn hoffs. I'm going to make that with a wild pig someday. What about the soup beans last night? Oh, oh, good man. Country I ham. Can eat some right now. Country right. ham. But what were you getting season. at? Yeah, you got over your food. Okay, oh, okay. you're going to tell him how to fix his wife up. Yes, <laughs> yes. What you do. Get some pawn hops. Is <laughs> take her out. Like I said, I was in the tobacco patch, and man, I'm thinking, you know, I would go cut tobacco for these guys for free if I just to get to eat at, at, at uh, Tommy's mother's house there. I, about 7.30, I've been work for 30 minutes, and about 7.30, I says, man, what are we going to have to eat today? Oh, Mama had to go to town there. Says she's got a big old stack of amended cheese sandwiches in her maiden. So we're gonna go over there in the darn watermelon patch and bust one open there and eat the hearts out of them watermelons. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I hate pimento cheese. <laughs> I hate pimento cheese. So we got around to lunchtime and we get in there and she's got this big stack of pimento cheese and and I reached in there and I took a bite. It was the best damn thing I ever had in my entire life because I was hungry. And to this day, I like pimento cheese. Now, there's different grades of pimento yeah, cheese. So you're saying he needs to starve up his wife. Starve up. <laughs> starve her up. Starve her up right there and give her some catfish. Yep, give her some catfish. pimento cheese, too? Yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, listen. I don't know. Until I met my wife's family, I had never had a pimento cheese. Sandwich. Yeah, Yanni married into the South. Uh, <laughs> pimento cheese is uh, basically... A couple t- types of maybe grated up cheese, a hard cheese, maybe a soft Velveeta type, uh, mayonnaise, and pimento peppers. Yep. And that's what I was scared to because for first probably 12, 14 years of my life, I would not eat cranberry sauce because it was red. Red was off my, my menu there. <laughs> you know, we'd go through the school lunch line and they had this big gel- gelatinous loaf of stuff in there that they was carving off and it looked like maybe raw liver or something to me, so I would not even try 
uh, cranberry sauce. Now, I love the thing right there, but pimento cheese had these little giblets of red pimentos in there. <laughs> and there are several different uh, recipes. I think some people uh, put a little sugar in the thing, give it a little extra taste, you know, either mayonnaise, salad dressing, something like that, and just make a spread out of it. And it's out of this world. My mom would take pimento and olive and make pimento cream cheese, which is, oh, man, that stuff's good. Yeah. So, yeah, the missus. Starver. I, I know more. Here's the thing. I know more. And, and I I know more guys that have problems. Ridge, his wife, all, you know. And I've had girlfriends in the past that had, oh, I don't eat this and I don't eat that. Oh, my God. I Listen, my wife, my wife is mad at me quite often. <laughs> but one problem I do not have is uh, she eats everything yeah it doesn't matter i it's i could be like that's rat she'd eat it because she don't like to cook and she likes it that she likes it that we eat wild meat and that's and the kids eat wild meat and she doesn't care i i could it she will eat any kind of food i cook doesn't care and she'll have friends over even like people she works with over and when she don't ask me like oh what are you gonna make and don't make this she could bring the whole crew over i'd be like it's rat and she's gonna be. She just dig in and be like, if you don't want to eat it. That's. But you make it good eat later. You make it good. Yeah, but I'm just saying. I like after having lived through all kinds of ex girlfriends who had like, oh, I can't eat a rabbit. Oh, it's, man. it's with her, it, but she'll eat. <laughs> but I, mean, I love your wife. But like, she, I'll bring home. We brought home pig, and uh, I've cooked everything. We've brought home mule, mule deer, deer yeah. and she she likes it. I mean, some stuff she's like, yeah, I'm not nuts about it. Yeah. I'll eat it. You know, but yeah, it's it's the fish thing, and I mean, she's even to a point like she loves like Thai food, but they cook a lot with like oyster sauces, and she can be like, yeah, they put oyster sauce in this, I could taste it, I don't like it. Really? Yeah. The one thing my wife doesn't like, uh, skanky salmon. Oh yeah. Like if you leave salmon in a freezer too long and it gets skanky, no matter what you do to hide the skank, she don't like it. That's weird because most people I know love skanky salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Um. Yeah, and my kids, man, too. It's like they, you know, I, we don't have to deal with that either. But we've never done the thing where I know people that cook separate meals for their kids at night, which is just, I think, the worst idea. Yeah. You're going to pay for that the rest of your life. <laughs> we sent our kid to school with a muskox sandwich not long ago. I told him about, I said, I guarantee you, the only mm. kid in Seattle public school will ever go down to the muskox sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know though. They don't even know it's weird. I was we were in Mexico. We were riding horses, and my little three year old said she wanted to get a horse. I said we don't have anywhere to keep a horse. She says no to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Yanni's two year old. This morning, oh, that's right? right. Yeah, we cut the lawn on our at our house, and it was it was quite tall, so we didn't know all the critters that were running around there. <laughs> now we know that we have cottontail rabbits running around on the hillside, and I guess this morning they were watching the cottontails out front, and my two-year-old looked at her mother and said, we're going to eat that bunny. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, back to cooking catfish. Why is the flathead belly? This is interesting. Have we covered fiddlers to everyone's satisfaction? Oh no, because I was uh, did a little Google research in here, and best I can find out without getting heavy into it is that because we couldn't. Do we ever find out where they got its name? No, I How? mean it's just local term that you know they grew up with. 
They are the catfish that fiddle with your bait. Oh, I like that. And I've had a lot of those fiddling with my bait. Like a bull, bullhead kind of. The second answer That was, is called a bait stealer around here. <laughs> <laughs> the second answer was that they make a fiddle-like noise when they're pulled out of the water, which I'm not going to accept that. I've pulled plenty of up, and I haven't yet yeah. heard any fiddling. Have you? That, that croaking. Yeah, but that looks like a fiddle. Well, maybe it's a bad fiddler. <laughs> that like but a but that, that's the only thing I can... Yeah, but there's all know. manner of fish. I mean, like all the grunts and, you know... Hey, I don't like, they look like a little fiddle. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, then a big one would look like a big fiddle. Or if something was used from like them. Like a cello. I, I, I call it, it, we're done talking about that. Um, I'm, just, I'm making an executive decision. We're not discussing where the name came from. Has, have we covered the consumption of fiddlers? Kevin, could you tell me a weight or, and or length at which a catfish is, ceases to be a fiddler? In my opinion, like he's holding out, his, he's inches. making a, two fists. So, so extend your thumbs out from your two fists. That's a hundred. Touch your I mean, thumbs tip inches. to tip. Yep, right there. That's a fiddler. That's a fiddler. Pretty fists, much a, a, a grown-up adult. Two fists. Put your thumb out like you're making thumbs ups. Touch thumbs tip to tip. You're looking at a fiddler. That's undressed. That's head to tail. Yes. Yeah. Head to tail. That's that's the, probably the true fit. If you get a big fiddler, it doesn't want to fry good. It takes longer to cook. So if you've got if you when you've got him, he's twelve inches long. You skin him, chop his head off, gut him right there. Then he'll fry consistent. You won't have to. Yeah. The, the big ones, you know, if you if you get one down here two pounds, then he's this big around. So to get him cooked all the way through there, his tail end is going to be overcooked, incinerated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Another word you guys like, and it's not specific to your area, but you guys use it heavily. Like where I grew up, you clean stuff. You guys dress stuff. So it'd be like, are you going to dress it? Like we yesterday, we dressed the turtle. I would growing up, we would have said you're going to clean the turtle, but your buddy Jody was like, did you dress the turtle yeah. yet? That's Jody's term. I pretty much say clean. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, mean, I hear it both ways, but yeah. but I'm pretty much a clean guy. So again, just real quick, small catfish, break down, you're, you're heading them, gutting them, skinning them. Well, the first thing you would do would be to skin them. Head on. <clears throat> Head on. Because it's easy to get a hold of. There's a little bone that sticks out right below their fin. If, you've got some, if you're going to be a catfishman, you need some catfish skinning pliers. They're all purpose. You know, you we use them. We use them. We use them to skin a turtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, you know, get you a good pair, keep a sharp edge on things. Ideal, many, many uses there. But when you hold the catfish kind of sideways, then that I don't know what that bone is. It kind of sticks out. Bone's a pain in the ass. Actually, you just snip that bone right there, and that's where you can get a start on the skin because you've got something hard to get get against instead of flesh. And the catfish skin is slick, as we all know. It's starting to wall around. But when you push, poke that bone out there, it becomes like a little little grab point, set point right there. So nip just, it with your knife. Just nip it with life. Then you've got your skin open. Grab your skin then and just slow, steady pull all the way out to the to the fin. Skim both leave sides. Leave the tail on yeah, it. Yeah, leave the tail the, on the it. The skin just kind of peters out at the tail. It just yes. pulls free. Yes. And then do both sides. Uh, you might clip the the um, top fin off or the side fins with the with the catfish pliers so you're not impaling yourself yeah. on there and then when uh, get it gutted and then the last thing cut your head off 
and a little blood vein in the along the back backbone. Take your thumb and fingers, whatever. Take that off and pop that open, wash it out, and um, very mild. And you don't need to trim it because it's a small fish, right? Right. There's no need going in there looking for blood or fat or whatever. Is it it'll cook up and not have any type of off flavor whatsoever? And that's probably one of the reasons why I used to like eating fiddler so much. Growing up, uh, when I was small, the big thing around here, we didn't fillet fish because you was going to waste a morsel of meat or something. Yeah, fillet fish is a is a luxury of is a luxury of like wealthy countries cultures. You go to you know you go down even into Mexico, South America, Asia, they don't fillet shit. Yeah. You cook fish whole, head on. And get every bit out of there. But we would either have fiddlers or we'd have catfish steaks. You'd go to a restaurant somewhere, and that would be the two choices. You want fiddlers or you want catfish steaks. Well, when they stake those things up, got all that red meat in there, and so and it cooks up black is what it looks like. Yeah. Black, gray, nasty, 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 nasty there. So you just kind of pick around that. Sometimes you could do that very successful. Sometimes that flavor would go ahead and impregnate the meat. Be very strong. Be very strong. Is that steak fried? Yes, yes. Well, they we, fried a catfish steak. Yes, yeah, yeah. We fried cat, catfish steak, yeah. Hardly any bait will blacken. You know, a lot of racers will blacken catfish now, but but the catfish steak was, you know, it'd be like this wide or so, chunked up. Yeah, no, I uh, same way. You, same way you stake out a swordfish or yes. a shark. Yeah, yeah, and you need to have the bones, you know, still in there, and you just pick around, pick around the bones there. But uh, very, could be very, very strong, very strong flavor. They ever smoke catfish? Yes, it's good. I mean, you know, very good. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame 
instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So that's everybody cool on failures, Adam? Cool. Um, now, other cats, why do guys eat flathead belly, but they don't eat blue belly or channel belly? I've got a friend that's very particular about what he eats. Another one of my friends said he was raised on vanilla wafers when he was a kid. That's like he admits that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He admits that. And he commercial fish for a while. And he tells me, he said, if I could get just one source get flathead catfish bellies, I could put every catfish restaurant in the area out of business. The the texture is a little bit more like meaty, meaty texture. And, you know, it does have a very good, good taste. You know, when we were- But what do you do about that silver skin inside there? Do they scrape that off or just fry it up? Just fry it up. Just pull it out there and, you know, it has no off off taste on that. So we do cut that off, too. So we you're, you're pulling the skin off the catfish, mm-hmm. but then the whole damn belly part. Part, yeah. We'll cut that out. You know, catfish, you know, we're looking at a, a, a 20 to 40-pound flathead, so it's going to have a pretty substantial uh, stomach on it. Like size of a pie, laid out size of a pie plate. Yes, pie plate there. Cut it in long strips, you know, pull the skin off. Cut that inside out there, and you've got that meat texture. I think I showed you, uh, Garrett. I said, I opened that piece of fish up, and oh, yeah. you could see the meat texture running in there. It wasn't flaky. It had more structure to yeah, it there. it was like. I said, I said this looks like uh, flathead to me. And that's when I went up there to the waitress and asked her, I said, I said is this flathead catfish? She said, yes, that's what we serve here is flathead. Kind of like crab, skin, uh, crab meat in that. Like stringiness, strangulated there, strangular yeah. form there. And how do how do you guys cook up belly? They just fry it up. Fry the same way, yeah, yeah. Fry it the same way. So another thing I noticed when they're clean. So so that's the anomaly there, or or the difference. Like a flathead people like keep the belly. Now I noticed everything else they flay, flaying blues and flaying channels around here. They not only don't take the belly. 
but they don't flay out and over the ribs. So when they come in to cut that flay and they get to where you'd get that thin piece over the ribs, they run their knife out and leave the rib and belly meat on the carcass. Just pull off the flay, skin it, and then pull the vein out of the flay, but not even keep the rib meat. Now, I had a guy mention to me that it was twofold that once you trim it, there's nothing left, and it's not good, and... um. You know, it's it's been widely reported that if you have high levels of heavy metals in your fish, they tend to accumulate in belly flat, fat, fat of the belly. So that's your understanding of why they don't keep that rib meat. I'm going to adopt, because I've eaten the best catfish down here I've ever eaten in my life. Um, Meaning... Another way of putting that is the mildest, least muddiest catfish I've ever eaten in my entire life. I'm going to adopt wholesale every aspect of how they flay catfish in Kentucky. I will never handle a catfish another way. Why should you? There's no reason. I can't think of one. (laughs) All right. We fished catfish three ways. Down here, I'm not even going to touch on regular old fishing pole fishing, rod and reel fishing, because everybody knows what that is. We jugged, limbed, and trotted. I don't know if those are actually verbs. I recently learned that golfing is not a verb. It would be like saying tennising. You you play golf. You do not go golfing. Um. You know another little thing to keep if you if you want to be a, if you want to speak uh, the language properly. You can't give away something for free. It can be free of charge. It can be oh, yeah. for a dollar, but it is not for free. Well, Jody said he was going to learn you English. Did he tell you this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so, break down jugging. Jugging um, is a technique where you take uh, some type of floating uh, device, whether it be... Two-liter pop bottle. Yeah, two-liter pop <laughs> bottles, uh, silicone together to give you four liters. That keeps you from... When you, you get the big big daddy catfish on there, you don't have to chase it all day long. <laughs> and they fit very conveniently in a nice uh, liter bottle rack. Uh, in the state of Kentucky, you're allowed 25 jugs per person. Uh, no more than fifty per boat uh, when you go on a jugging ex- expedition. When I was a kid, you could throw is that out jugs the, or is that hooks? That is jugs. But by law, a jug can only have one oh. singular multi-barbed hook. hook. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, some people like you, you can run a treble or a J hook or a circle, right. but only one, one hook one per hook. jug. Right. Oh, that's a bomber. Because no, no. as soon as, when I was going to come You're back, run droppers. Uh, yeah, I was going to run droppers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some people uh, use a pool noodles. The, the the pool floats for the kids the long you know they're like like three foot long four foot long something. yeah but can you imagine having fifty of those things dangling in the wind that's blowing? what Leon doesn't like them because Leon uh, uses uh. the same thing if you ever see a guy deliver pop to a store they got those little cartons those little crates that are fit to hold two liter pop bottles so he run he transports all of his jugs in an actual pop carrying deal and it's organized. A, a double a double pop carrier because I made a mistake. I was at the oh, right. lo- local he, he, store he, the other day and the, the Coca-Cola man was there delivering. I'm thinking, my opportunity. <laughs> my opportunity. I says, 
can I buy a couple of those uh, those cartons right there? And uh, he says, well, he said, I'll just give you some. How many do you need? And I'm doing the quick calculation. It holds eight in each one. I says, uh, can I get six from you? Would that be a problem? <laughs> no, no. So he just hands them to me. I get them back. Well, I needed 12 because he cuts the bottom out of one and glues it, silicones it together to give it that height yep. up there oh, on the yeah. two right there. So yeah. I'm halfway there. Man, that dude's level of organization and tidiness, oh, <laughs> loved it. Anyhow, jug. we haven't even explained what jugging is yet. So you got so, you got a float, a buoy. You, you've got a, got a buoy float with a line uh, on it. Um, one method to to jug is if you're going to be fishing an area. Well, I, you keep leaving out parts that I want that I that I think people should know about. Oh. Not much line. Well, that's, that's where I was going, and oh, you I'm interrupted sorry. me. Uh, <laughs> my friend Leon has been jugging for forty years. It's pure science, and you and you you do Leon's way or the highway, and but everything he's got is there for a reason. And he'll have his jugs color coded. He'll have like orange. Will have a uh, five to seven foot uh, leader on it. Um, green. Uh, Three to four, and then red, maybe one to two. Is, are these any secrets that he doesn't want the general public? The know? color coding? No, no, just in general. Oh, his leader length. Hey, yeah. Leon told no, me. No, because he said he's old enough. Yeah, he said 15 years ago, I would have told you boys shit about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Leon's words. But he said, I'm old now. And uh, I had a little talk with him. I said, Yeah. I said, You know, when they come down, and, and I took him squirrel hunting, I said, I pretty much. Everything I knew about squirrel hunting, I told him because, you know, if there's some young kid, if he can take a little bit of what I've told him and go out there and have a good experience, we've got to get more people in the field hunting and fishing. And having We're, success. And having success. That's what it's all apart. In cooking, you know, from from uh, catching, cleaning to cooking, we need to be out there showing people there. This is what – you know, it's, it's not about killing out there it's about the whole experience of being outdoors yeah and just like you know we witnessed yanni witnessed that mulberry falling in that water yesterday to me that's better than catching any 50 pound catfish or whatever that i saw that i was able to go out there and experience that right there and it registered on my hard drive up here saying hey let's put that to use see your fruit and mulberry yeah yeah, if you see that, I mean, it, 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 and we, and we did, and we were successful. That's being outdoors. That's being an outdoorsman is observing nature to see what's going on out there and utilize it to the fullest advantage there. But uh, now my friend Leon, he's, he's, he would not care. Like I said, he would like to see some more people. You know, as I told you earlier there, they used to have uh, jugging tournaments out there on the river there. The local fire department would put on for a charity fundraiser and, Said they would last two days, Saturday and Sunday. Said two days out there on the river from daylight to dark. Said it'll make a man out of you. But uh, no, I, I, we'll ex- explain. But like I said, he color codes them that way. You know, I, I was fishing with him the other day, and he said, "Don't throw none of the uh, the orange ones out." Said we got too low water in that one area; they're all going to hang up. Says you know, when we float over it, we'll throw them out. And that's oh, I got you. But in uh, heavy braid, like braided line, heavy braided line, you know, we're not fly fishing. It's not, he don't, it's not a trout that we got to fool. All we want is something on the end of the line that's going to hold them. And not like paracord, but like maybe about a third the diameter paracord. Yeah. Uh, probably, I think it's like, it's like a hundred pound test braided line, but not braided like, not like a uh, spider wire, 
but like a like a cord. It's a, a braided nylon line. Yeah, like in Alaska they call it Ganyan. Okay, it's not. You a, actually buy that at the bait and tackle shop? Yes, you do. And he runs a number nine J hook. A number a nine alt. Nine alt. Nine J-hook. alt J hook. Big hook, big bait, big fish. Uh, not so much big bait with those. Um, the catfish kind of go through a stage where they're out in the river. They may be what Leon says, sampling out. And they'll come up and hit a jug or something. They may take it under. And all of a sudden they let go of it. They're just out there hitting whatever. And uh, uh, you guys, I think, saw one go completely under the other day. And then he, he, he let go. And then when they're feeding, they're up there gobbling. And then that hook is way down in their mouth. Let me, let me, I, let me interrupt you again. I feel like I, I'm like I feel you're playing. You're play, I, I'm play, I'm playing bass and you're in your in your in your playing your, your solo guitar, but I, I want to like just set the stage because everything you're saying is great. But I feel like the 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 the, the order of information on jugging. I'll backtrack. Yeah, well, let me just lay it out for a second, because then you're going to give all the nuanced detail. But you're not under because you grew up around. You've known about jugging your whole life. I didn't know what the hell it meant. So I'm going to give you the very, a, a very offer, but very layman's explanation of jugging, and then you will lay on all the things I don't understand. You got floats, jugs, with small two to six feet a liter. Name and address on them. Name and address on them, and a hook. And a weight. And a weight. A washer. Any kind of weight to get it down. In the river, more than a washer. Oh, in the, in, in the Mississippi. A nut. Yeah, a Specifically, nut. stainless nylon lock nuts. Big-ass stainless nylon lock, on some of the rigs. But a big, oh, wait. You get above suitable area in a river. You get above where you know a catfish to be hanging out. Kevin will explain what that is. You bait all your hooks, and you start throwing the jugs overboard. Then you drift down in your boat with your flotilla of jugs. Mm-hmm. And when you're throwing them, it's not just like all in one lump. No, you spread them out. Yeah, they're kind of spread out in a line, and it's important to note, and Kevin will probably say this earlier too, but they start on the inside because the current's faster towards the middle of the river. Yeah. So they start dropping them there. But that's the nuance, though. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm trying to lay down the baseline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. And you're not telling it exactly right either. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So... You throw your jugs overboard, yes, in a very specific, timely way that we'll get into. You're floating along with them. You throw your jugs overboard. You drift downriver, watching the jugs for the telltale sign of a fish being on there, which would be when you're running two two-liters silicone together, the jug stands up, and a big fish will pull it under. At which point, you use your paddle or trolling motor, to very stealthily, not running your motor, but very stealthily go over, grab the jug, raise the fish up, net them. What's holding them there, he's not slacklined because he's fighting the jug. The jug is performing the function of your rod tip. Like he pulls and there's resistance, and so he's never getting slacklined. Um, and you pull him in a boat. Now, Yanni, add you know all your... Color and new, but I feel like now the listener understands what we're talking about. Yeah, totally, totally. No, I think Kevin should because obviously I already effed so, it up. <laughs> Kevin, okay, Garrett, you just, don't need to raise your hand. Well, just because <laughs> I want to let Kevin free rap once he gets going. 
But for me to understand as a, you know, born and raised Montana and then moving around elsewhere. Where jogging's illegal, I'll point yeah. out. And you can set out, but you can set out a set line with six hooks on it that's affixed to the bank. Yeah. But what equated how I wrap my brain around observing what was going down, it'd be like if you were ice fishing on a mobile ice chunk yep. down the Yellowstone. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like the jugs were like tip-ups. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like... 50 tip-ups. Yeah. And the ice is moving. <laughs> yeah. And you're moving with the ice. But Kevin, that's... Yeah. All right. Now I'll lay down the color. You're getting ready to throw your jugs out. You look at your river conditions. See how much current's going. The wind. The wind plays a big factor in those jugs. You got the big two-liter, four-liter sitting on top of the water. It acts like a sail. So you've got to take in consideration. The current is the main factor. And you're, trying, very main you're factor. trying to deliver the bait to a river feature the same way when you're casting. You're like, oh, cast into that seam or cast into the edge of that hole or cast into the shade line. You're trying to drop these things in when they're going to be 200 yards down river and deliver them right into where you want without your boat going in there and spooking the fish. I think one of the rules of thumb is that uh, uh, 10% of waters hold 90% of the fish. Yeah. I, I hear, I keep hearing that. 10% the of the fishermen catch 90% <clears throat> of the fish. And yes. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to ma- manipulate those jugs. Uh, you've got to watch out for barge traffic too. You know, we didn't fish in the, in the channel. Uh, we did have three jugs get hung up on a buoy uh, from a log that was out there. So they took those immediately. Yeah, the log got hung up on the buoy, buoy. and the jugs got hung up on the log. But like you said, you're trying to figure out, okay, the current's running this much this morning. We've got this much of a wind there. Where do I need to set those jugs to make them hit those locations? And the location that you want to go, you want to transition most of the time from shallow water to deep water. They lay in that little relaxed they, bit of they current. They lay in, in, in those, those areas, those, those river um, jetties that are built out there to redirect the flow of the water. You know, they come out. They're, it's scouring the bottom of the, of the river, pushing the current over, keeping the channel cut. And then you've got, I mean, we may be in four foot of water, then all of a sudden it, jump, it jumps off to 25 feet of water right there. Yeah, that's, you spend your life around fish. rivers, you learn to know. You know, you can look at the surface of a river, even if the water's not clear. You can look at the surface of the river and tell a lot about what's going on in underneath the river, and, and you're looking for those little edges. What, what's he called the little edges? I, I think reefs. What he was? No, he had no, he had uh, brick breaks, 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 yeah, yeah breaks, breaks. breaks. Using yeah, current yeah, breaks, breaks to find out what the underwater topography is like. Yes, yes, but um, you know that's what you want to fish for. You put those jugs out, and hopefully. You know, sometimes you might want them all concentrated in one area, or if you're not sh- for sure where the fish have been feeding, you've got them spread out from close to the bank all the way out to the main channel. And then, as that was, you know, we've got the confluence of two rivers, the Ohio and the Mississippi, quite a bit of current coming in there. And you just have to know the river, you know, that yeah. part. Or if you're up here on Kentucky Lake or whatever, you may go into a bay. And you know that that uh, the wind is is blowing uh, into the bay, so you'll go out to the mouth of the lake, the old river channel. Set your jugs there, let them blow into the into the bay, and collect them there instead of going into the to the, the end of the bay. And then it may be blowing out of the bay, so you'll put them on the, yeah. the windward side and, and do that. So you you take the factors of you may be an area where there's very little current, and then the wind goes in to be. 
the main factor of of jug um, manipulation or motive or motoring from that away. You can and there's a wide variety of baits: cut bait, live bait, um, chicken gizzards, chicken, soaked, chicken livers, chicken gizzards deer soaked meat, in garlic and jello, <laughs> deer heart. You know, deer hearts out there. Yeah. Um, like sit, cut bait, you mentioned that. Yeah, I mentioned cut can bait. Can you do live bait? You, yeah, people run live if they, bait. If they can prefer, um, since the Asian carp has hit our waters, uh, they are in competition with all of the bait fish, and we just not see the bait fish are hard to get. And certain times of year, they're hard to get anyway. Yeah. And, and like I said, one of the, the methods Leon is I've got a good bait. It might not be the ba- best bait, but consistently, it's a good bait. And, and it smells it, so damn good, man. Chicken gizzards soaked in garlic. God. And every time you open that cooler up, I'd start getting hungry. <laughs> and we know what the issue is to getting bait. You know, we really needed some bluegill when we went fishing, but didn't have the time, opportunity. I tried to get my buddy, uh, uh, Raymond to, to catch us some bait. Uh, two weeks ago, we went down to a little spot, threw out a one cast of a throw net, had 14, 15 bluegill. Well, Rains came in, uh, all the little uh, places that he, he had fished, it filled in with water. He made uh, several flows, and he come out with one shad out of that time. So, yeah. so you know, a bait it becomes an issue that, that yes, if we'd had some uh, uh, small bluegill, we would have fared and we were much better. We were running shiners, shiners in the short-nosed gar. I think we're taking those shiners off as fast as we can set the damn hooks. Yeah. yeah. So, anyhow. So, so, getting back, like I said, he's got a bait that he doesn't have to spend an hour or two. Uh, you know, fishing for, uh, we were, we got down there. It was, it was a short, short night for you guys. You know, got up about three. We met down there at, uh, what, uh, quarter to five. You know, we was in the water by five thirty, you know, right there at, at daybreak. And the reason he likes to do that is we started out by fishing a bar, a six foot deep bar. And he said the minute a pleasure boater or a not so smart jug fisherman, runs his boat over that bar it pushes all the blues off the bar like they're very sensitive to that he likes to be the first boat on the water because he wants the first thing that he doesn't want anything to spook those catfish off that bar so he can run his jugs over it he said once that happens you know he says he sees a lot of guys well-meaning guys zoom across the bar from a down, come from downstream, drive over the bar and throw all their jugs. And he said it's pointless because you run all the catfish off the bar. And we kind of proved that to ourselves because we went back and fished that bar one one fish. Yeah. We the first 20, time we pulled, I don't know. We caught 24 total that day. 200 pounds of fish. Yeah. And then, like I said, we went the second time, we caught one fish. After but someone had went down. There was a boat. We don't know for sure if they were jugging yeah. or limb line. Or, they were or jugging. They had, good, they, they had a good float. float. They had a good float. But we came in right behind those guys. We came over, and I don't know, we caught 15 or something the first time, or I don't know, some number of them. We have a 200 pounds of fish, 38 pounds of uh, trimmed boneless flays. No belly meat. No belly meat. Yeah, and I don't know if you guys got to, to see it because, it, it, you know, there's a certain monotony that kind of starts to, after you figured it out and you see what's going on, and, and it's kind of like, all right, all right, I kind of got this jugging thing. But... There was an instance, because you're watching most of the jugs, when they're getting hit, they're kind of flopping around a little bit. If it's a bigger fish, it's the jug disappears for half a second. It pops back up. You know, It starts to really flop real well, and that's when Leon was starting to get excited. But we were about 10 feet away from two jugs. I just happened to be, they were like in my you know, periphery. 
and all of a sudden one of those jugs just goes bye bye. I mean, just <laughs> just is gone. And I'm going, what? what, what? And and the guy who was driving our boat is just like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. He's like, let's hope it doesn't come up. It ain't coming up. Let's hope it doesn't come up. And I mean, we never saw it come back up. And obviously it did because we recovered all, all of our jugs. And that you just lose track because the river's drifting, the fish is dragging it around. You don't know where it popped up and when it did. But I mean, for at least 30 seconds, a minute, this jug was gone. So we had a giant on yeah. and it, it gets exciting when that happens yeah and he gets some fish that approach 100 pounds he's got a 100 pound picture of one there on the on the uh, wall of his uh, garage and he yeah. said you trim that thing up flay it and trim it up he says you can't tell the difference between that and a four pound cat taste wise this is all the same all right lemon there's nothing like seeing pulling up and having a big flathead on there, and this limb is going boom. Boom. Got to we got to lay the groundwork. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does everybody know how to limb line? <laughs> no. <laughs> limb line. That's a technique where you take a single hook and you tie it onto a limber branch sticking out over the water. Uh, if you deadhead it to a snag or whatever, if you get a big fish, he's going to tear off. He's going to tear off of that yanking and pulling. But um, you take one of Mother Nature's fishing rods that's hanging out there for you, tie you uh, one wrap around, a double hitch, real easy to pull off. It will hold the fish. Uh, have a, whatever small weight, maybe a washer, maybe a nut, maybe a lead sink or whatever to keep your bait down in the water somewhat, uh, anywhere from know your river conditions, know what your river's going to do because you don't want to be fishing in air the next morning there. <laughs> like you, you're, cause you're fishing. So like a foot to three feet, foot to three water feet. Surface. Yes. What I like, like to fish in, uh, even better with, if the r- river is rising somewhat, um, you mark the, the river bank. Uh, before, after we got everything set to see what we're going to be the next day. And I think it actually had, had risen just a little bit. Yeah, so we had a pre- pretty much uh, a steady river elevation. But uh, there again, uh, you need some type of marker. It's real easy to lose your limb lines. I use a black tar uh, braided line. If you use a white one, it shows up much better, but everybody else can see those too. And we put a small orange marker on them. Plus, we had our names on each one of the, the limb lines. By law, you have to do that. And how many limb lines are you allowed to run per person? You, you're allowed to run 25 per person. You're supposed to check them every 24 hours. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Every 24 hours. And, and you let that thing dangle there and fish. Yep. Uh, put it in. We baited up in the morning. Uh, probably all in all, uh, we used shiners, which were very easy to tear off. Want to try to keep live bait. We were going to target flatheads is what we were going for. The flathead cats and, and their number one food is live. Probably one reason why their belly meat tastes better on a, on a flathead is because everything they eat is live protein there. It's not, you know, whatever's floating in the river. Yeah. But, um, um, bait them up. I, I used eight alt, uh, just a straight J hook with a swivel in there. And then our weight was a shiny washer. Uh, hopefully that that's uh, a, a fish attractant with it turning there in the water. Looks like some type of bait fish in there. So it dual purpose. It holds it down. Maybe maybe attractant. 
and um, we baited with um, with the Shiner Minas and uh, Deerheart. Deerheart's another very very excellent uh, um, uh, fish attractant. So I would say on average these things are set from three four yards from the bank out to. 10, 12 yards in the bank. Right, whatever. Tied to an overhead limb. The limb was probably typically five, six feet at the most above the water surface. 10 feet of line. Tie a knot. Put a bait on. Let it dingle in the current. And uh, live bait. And then let it do its job. Illegal where I grew up, set line. All this stuff's illegal. all, all, All illegal, huh? Yeah, you allowed one line. One line in the water has to be on a rod and reel. So that's a pretty easy one to understand. And we had, by the time we got them baited up, we had a fish on. Yeah. Pulled a, pulled a nice little uh, uh, channel catfish off. Trot lining. I think many more people are familiar with trot lining. Oh, another version of limb lining is the one I was talking about, which is poke pulling, where if you don't have good overhanging limbs, you take a big limber sapling, cut a sharp end on it, and just jab that son of a bitch way into the bank and then tie off on that, and you're basically like making a limb. You know, you're making like a, a, a limb in the perfect position you want it in, and then letting that hang there and come back through and check it, which is poke pulling, variation on limb lining. Um, trot lining. A sports trot line uh, can have no more than 50 hooks uh, per line, uh, 18 inches apart. From one hook to the next is the minimum amount of distance and needs to be some three feet underwater. Why, why is that? I didn't, I didn't boat props. Rec- recreation boat props. Okay. So three feet yeah. has to be, yeah, three can feet. It be lower than three feet? Yeah, it can be lower than three feet. So it's three feet and under. Yeah, okay. three feet yeah, and Yeah, like we've run our own set lines over doing uh-huh. that and you, you know, like cut them off with the prop, you know. And what you have is a little square box uh, that's holding about. It's got little notches cut in it. You've got a main line that's big. It's like probably like a 120-pound, 160-pound test. And then you string what we call the tugs. The tugs are a smaller braided line. Let's say it's it's 100 pounds. Other folks call them dro- droppers or leaders. Yeah, well, okay, okay. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, it's got a swivel on there. Uh, mine were made up where it had beads on each end so the tug can can, can uh, spin around, whatever it needs to do. Uh, I, we had some small hooks. We had some, well, fiddler hooks on there pretty much, number two number two hooks. And we baited those up mainly with uh, little chunks of deer heart about the size of your end of your little finger. I think we did put a shiner or two. On there, Some dead shiners. Yeah, uh, like I said, when we made the Yanny made the observation of the local uh, quick stop for the fish to get the mulberries, and I tasted some of the mulberries, and I've been eating mulberries for fifty years or, or longer. My grandmother had three big mulberry trees in her backyard, and the ones that we got to sample. The best I've ever had. The, the the best and the biggest, like hydroponically grown on the bank of the Ohio River. And uh, they were just outstanding. The mul- that's why they call us the Mulberry Gang. That's right. Because we all got purple hands. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty hard to get off. Pretty hard. But uh, you've got uh, your main line of your truck line, 50 hooks tied up to tugs. You have a special box built um, that's four-sided, holds, has about 12 to 
the 13, 14 slots in each side. Uh, you coil with a screen bottom in it so water can run right through when you retrieve your line. You don't have a moldy mess in there. And so you, you take the lead in of your trot line, uh, put it in the bottom of the box, and then each of those notches you put a tub with a hook attached. And so then you just put them in there in order, you go around, and then when you get ready to uh, um, place the line in the, in the, in the water, you may need a uh, um, a piece of braided line to tie off to uh, some type of structure like we did, and we just start feeding line out. You bait it up before you start fishing. You, where you got your bait on there. Tie off to a tree, structure, whatever, or if you want to go out in deep water, you may uh, drop an anchor down with a float. Get the depth of the water, maybe 20 feet. You want to fish 10 feet of water. So tie your line 10 feet, have a float up at the top, and then you've got a line suspended out in the deep channel. And then do the same thing on the other end. But you just start um, um, reeling your, your box line out and went fairly smooth. I mean, you know, you got 50 hooks right and you there. And you guys string that son of a bitch banjo tight. Banjo tight. Which I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. yeah you get her banjo tight, and that way uh, it stays at that elevation that you think where the fish are going to be, uh, doesn't flop around in the current. You know, there's all types of debris in the water sticking up, roots, limbs, and all that right there. So you get her tight. If You know, she's out there flopping in the water. She's allowed to get tangled up on all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, we lost fish because of having the fish wrap the thing around like that one time we had it hung up we lost two cats or three cats, cats right there it, yeah yes trying to because we, we got some slack in our line you know trying just trying to get it unsnagged and it's and you got your name and id and address on that also like i said you're you're allowed to fish 250 hook boxes per person or 150 box and 25 set yeah, lines so we set out two lines over probably 100 yards long maybe oh together. yes yeah every bit of that 50 hooks on each and we strung them parallel to the bank affixed to snags and over and fallen trees so you're basically running it a little bit i don't know 30 feet off the bank parallel to the bank all baited up and um it's fun man works good adam concluding thoughts it's a trip man i love catfish that's good Thank you. You had a good time? Yeah. No, I had a great time. A little warm for me, the humidity. But you've seen all manner of fishing. Yeah, I've done a lot ton of, of bill fishing. A lot of sail big, fishing. And yeah, yeah, big big game fish, I guess you would call them, you know, sails, marlin, tuna. I've seen a lot of it. So I always, I always think it's fun to, I, don't, I like fishing, so it's fun to see how it works other ways. And Do you think all those yachtsmen with helicopters on their boats and whatnot are going to come start fishing? noodlers tomorrow <laughs> probably not <laughs> you never know <laughs> yeah any concluding thoughts mm, i had one can you come back to me yeah. i forgot it i got two dirt all right two all right uh first one i wish we had time to talk about the swamp night because that was oh pretty wild yeah i do want to mention something but <laughs> oh no you know use your concluding thoughts well, if you can do it cleanly and efficiently, use your concluding thoughts to mention any aspects of the trip. Because I'm going to mention two: the paddlefish and the snapper. Okay. Well, I so got don't worry about those. Okay. I well, before I get to that, the other question I had, like these are big rivers. 
I'm bad with geography. He can't even barely say it. <laughs> <laughs> He's so bad. So when I, when I came down here, I knew the Mississippi was big, but I didn't realize that all a lot of these rivers are huge. Which, the Mississippi's a sham. The Mississippi is the Missouri. They oh, just yeah, yeah, named yeah. it before they realized. The Missouri the starts... Full, the Missouri. Yeah, the Missouri yeah. heads yeah, yeah. up in Montana. Yeah. Flows all the way across the continent. Is gigantic when it picks up a little pissant creek called the Mississippi, <laughs> which then assumes the name of the Missouri and then picks up the Ohio, which again is bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. But it's that, a bullshit river. <laughs> Calling it the Mississippi is bullshit. We call it the Ohio. Yeah. Is but, that right? Uh, yes. <laughs> All that stuff he just said is sham too. <laughs> but my question actually, just to give the listeners an idea, these are big waters. There's a lot of trees. There's a lot of, there's not many uh, like landscape markings. And like you guys are setting on specific fishy areas and you never use GPSs. And I'm curious. Yeah. Like, a lot of people in other sportsman activities will, you know, mark certain areas in this and that. And I haven't seen you guys do any of that. Not you, know, you nor Leon. Can I, take, you know, can I take a stab at that after Kevin answers it? Um, we look for landmarks that common to our eyes. Like when we stop putting down, we, you know, I knew where we were going to start, you know, putting limb lines in not far from the boat ramp. Pretty yeah. easy right there. Well, when we put the last uh, limb line out, I looked there and I saw a feature, a snag into the bank right but there. But there's like thousands of well, snags. Well, it was a special snag. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the other thing is, what do you say? Look, think of what Leon was saying. He goes, oh, there used to be a bar right here that ran 400 yards, like, Basically, from here, he goes, but it's gone now. <laughs> yeah. It's a, such a dynamic waterway. Yeah, it's always shifting. The, the, exactly. Those whole islands that like weren't there when he was a kid, and they're there now. Yeah, and then no GPS. And the channels move around all the time. It just is like, it'd be irrelevant. Oh, yeah, with the GPS. He's like, oh, sometimes this bar, like this bar used to be a mile down, but now oh, it's up yeah. here. I mean, the, like, so the you feet, mark it. Because like, you got these flood cycles like he's talking about. Yeah. We've been going around, and he's talking about, that's you'd be looking point. up a hill at a at a gazebo on top of a hill, and he'd be talking about the water being knee deep in the gazebo. Yeah, they they built Smithland Locks in like eighty two, and before that, the chute that we fi- uh, fished in, you could pretty much walk from there over to Hurricane Island. It was just a, that there was a big huge sandbar out there. My buddy Paul said that's where we all learned to swim out here on the sandbar, but there was very little very little water through there yeah and now it's now they raised the pool like six seven feet Dang. and it's become a big big lake yeah um but it may change it won't change anymore um they're getting ready they're in the process of building Olmstead dam yeah that's that's halfway between there and leon's most expensive corps of engineers project ever and it's going to take out a couple more locks out there it's going to we're going to have a huge lake pool yeah from 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 about 60 70 miles down from there all the way up it is cool, though, too, because you're taking note in real time as opposed to being hooked to some screen, you know? Right. You're, you're being more engaged with your we surroundings. We may, may look on a riverbank and see a tall tree. Now, when we motor to the other side, uh, the, the, the river feature that I notice, I told Steve, it says, see the tree with the, it's still got the leaves on it that's been knocked over? I said, that's where we're going to start. You know, with their mm-hmm. with jug. So I knew when I come across. Yeah. And then when I got across there, I says, well, we put the trot line 
upriver at the mulberry tree. So I had my one landmark to go and go on upriver. If it had been nighttime, I might have had a GPS out there. Because <laughs> you get real confusing out there on the river tonight. That <laughs> Going to a deer stand in the morning on the far side of the island, very confusing. Yeah. Very confusing. You got your thought yet or do you need more time? Yeah. Because okay. we, we, I can go. Another item we are just not going to get to talk about too much, but the E-Town River Restaurant. Yeah, that's that's going to be your concluding thought? Yeah. All right, break it down. Um. It's just it's super cool because it, it really is like uh, the maybe the the last place where you can get fish like that close to the source. And, Going back in time, yeah. Th- so this guy processes thousands and lots, lots. <laughs> I wasn't going to say how many thousands. <laughs> just like thousands. I thought he was going to say ounces. Is what I thought he was going to say. Ounces, many ounces, <laughs> many, many ounces of fish. <laughs> yeah. Um, of catfish that are brought to him by commercial fishermen. His his restaurant is is a floating is on a barge on on the Ohio River. Yeah, and and I'll, and I'll point out, or I'll let you. No, I will. <laughs> this is one of very few commercial freshwater fisheries in the nation. Is it for native fish? Yeah, yeah. We'll name some more. Canada runs some commercial fisheries. Michigan has like a commercial fishery for Lake Whitefish. There's very few commercial fisheries. Yeah. Smelt maybe. Some in Canada, some in, in Northern Great Lakes, often with tri- only with tribal fishermen. Anyway, it's one of the very, very few commercial fisheries for native freshwater fish. Go ahead. And so it, the, the fish is bought there. It's cleaned right there. I mean, literally, the, the little cleaning station is not jumping distance, but certainly a stone's throw from where the fryer is. You walk right on there, and you're getting fit. You're you're eating on top of the river that the fish grew up in, and the live well is within jumping distance of the cleaning station. Yeah, and uh, I was talking with the owner a little bit about us filming there and whatnot. And he owns another restaurant up on the hill, just a couple blocks away, and they serve catfish there too. But they have on the menu they have pond catfish and river catfish, and uh, he told me that the River fish stays on the river. So if you want to eat that actual river channel cat, no, flathead, you have to walk out onto his barge. You cannot you cannot buy it, you know, two blocks away up on the hill, which is like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and he I, has I like turned that. customers away, he was saying. Yeah. So when he turns them away, he sends them up to his other place, but they got to go get pond calf. They got to go get aquaculture fish. They can't get river fish. Stays on the river. Yeah. That was a good-ass uh, Elis- restaurant. Elizabeth Town in... Illinois. And there's a really nice house on the river for listed. Yanni called in on it. What did they want for that place? 104? Uh, a buck and a quarter. buck and a quarter. Yeah. Kevin thinks you'd get it for a hundo. I'd be afraid to offer him a hundred for it. Really? <laughs> so, Just because of water raising and stuff? No, I think they would sell it. Oh, yeah. In a heartbeat for a hundred. Yeah. I'll do my concluding thoughts, then Kevin can go. One, it. I get, I'm getting a little sick of this, like, uh, and nothing against you, Garrett. This, like, oh, GPS. Like, oh, you know, this kind of like, oh, I don't need GPS. You know, I'm a woodsman. It's like, are you, uh, here's why I have a hard time with people who are saying that. And I know you're not saying that. But what is wrong with an enhanced understanding of what's going on around you? We fish halibut in a place. Um, 
that you can look at charts and get like a somewhat of an understanding. And I'll, and I'll point out at one point in time, charts were a damn sure newfangled technology. Yeah. Like, I don't Maps, need a chart. Yeah. Like Columbus wasn't sailing on good maps, so he could have said, oh, you bullshitters now that use maps. <laughs> when I was a boy, why? Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so then charts, all of a sudden they had a way to sound depths electronically, and they drew up charts. Now people are like, I use charts, by God. I don't need a GPS. It's like, okay, it's the same guy that like, I don't have a cell phone. I got my regular phone hooked to a wire. <laughs> and but I at can't a time, <laughs> someone was like, you mother scratchers with these phones hooked to wires. I use a blanket and an old campfire. <laughs> we used to use, it's like, so we fished halibut in a spot. I never understood the spot. I never understood why I was there. You look at a chart and like, you can't tell anything about what's going on. You yeah. get a rough sense. There's like a high plateau. I got a GPS now and a sonar on my boat. I'm like, oh, no shit. <laughs> There's a big underwater mesa. Yeah. And it's really good to fish in a saddle between that and another mesa. I wonder why that is. That's so interesting that fish like to hang out there. I wonder if I can replicate this by going to other places and understand the mysterious ocean depths better. But it's like, I don't need no... (laughs) My second thing is... That's good, though. I got it. We were out running. We were out setting limb lines and down the river. I don't... Who spotted that thing? Down the river comes a paddlefish. It was in your guy's boat. You know, I, I spotted it. Jody spotted it. Dirt on his GPS. <laughs> dirt, dirt on his GPS. <laughs> <laughs> paddlefish coming down the river. A crippled up paddlefish coming down the river that got hit by a boat prop, clocked it in the head, cut off part of its gill cover. Down the river, like great shape other than a gash in his head. Jody tried to scoop it up in a net and it squirted it away from him. But I had my bow fishing rig. And we just pulled up to it, and you could probably grab it. If you kept that, you could have grabbed it or netted it. We just put an arrow into it in order to get up on the boat. And it looked like it just happened. It wasn't, it wasn't infected. The fish was fat, perfect, Burn. shiny health, but just had been dealt a death blow by a boat prop. And so we were able to – how much that thing? That was a 12-pound paddlefish. It, oh, every, every, every bit so? of that. Yeah. 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 So we staked that thing out. And then we were out frogging the other night, and before it got dark – I think it was you saw a turtle head pop up and it was funny because on our way in there i had saw what i thought was a turtle head i saw it the night before and i said oh is that a turtle and kevin said i thought that was a turtle last night it's a stick so we're out there and all of a sudden adam says hey there's a turtle head and I'm like, nah, it's a stick. Because <laughs> it was six stick. inches away from where the stick was. I'm like, no, we all thought that was a turtle too. It was a stick. He goes, no, nah, I saw it come up and go away. I'm like, bullshit, it was a stick. <laughs> I go over there and shine my light in the water. Big old snapper laying there underwater. So I grab my bow fishing bow arrow and put a bow arrow into his shell. And it, well, he, he was 18 pounds? Uh, every bit of that. Every bit of that. He was 18 pounds after we trimmed him up a little mm-hmm. bit. And then we dressed him, as Jordy would say. Michigan, you might say we cleaned them yesterday. So we got a bunch of turtle meat, too. And down here, you're allowed to, you can't trap turtles in conventional turtle traps, but you can take turtles any method that you can use to take rough fish. So you can set line, jug line, trot line, limb line for turtles, no limit. And with paddlefish, there's a paddlefish season for conventional tackle, but a bow fisherman, if you're using a bow, you're allowed two paddlefish. And you can use a turtle trap, a tilt trap, 
where they yeah, come up. types turtle traps. But I've never, I don't know how you would catch a snapping turtle in it because I've never seen one on a log. No, they don't climb out yeah, the sun. Yeah, yeah. So, but you can you can hook and line, you can gig, which you can spear, bowfish, turtles. And um, when I was a kid, we would you couldn't do any of that. However, you could turtle trap, and we used to use funnel traps or, or cage traps. Concluding thoughts, Kevin? Wait, could you tell them real quick about when we got on land looking for frogs after you bowed the snapper? Yeah, it was, harder than, wild. it was harder than doll sheep hunting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, when people ask me, I was saying, when people ask me now, like, what's the hardest hunt you've been on? I'd be hunting bullfrogs in Kevin's marsh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then doll night. sheep. And then doll sheep. And yeah. we probably wouldn't even have gone if I'd showed them a snake poster that I yeah. gave them last night. Oh, yeah. and I got the, bit by one of those... Giant I got water bit bugs. by a giant water bug. I'm assuming <laughs> on my ankle, which for about 30 seconds hurt like holy hell. They pinch you. I got pinched by a water yeah. bug. Steve said, I just got bit by something there. What could have got bit by? I thought it was a snake. I'm, I'm going through my hard drive trying to figure out. Then I always said, giant water bug. I said, it's an Amazonian bug feature there. It looks like it come right out of the Amazonia River. But uh, when I first got hit, I thought I got hit by a snake. Yeah. It was this that, like, it was that like intense. Yeah. It was like that sudden and intense. didn't last at all. But it was like, well, yeah, it was we, like if we, someone reached out and grabbed you with a pair of needle nose pliers on your leg. We you know, did it Well, it was like number four on the bite index, right? Yeah, it's so, got a high. Yeah, it's got a high on the on the Schmidt pain index. It's, I think does it score high on the Schmidt pain index? I don't know. It was pitch black. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is the guy in front of me goes, ow, oh, something's bit me. It's pitch black and dark. And I'm standing in like three feet of water going, uh-oh, what do you do? <laughs> we wanted a one. But here, the bullfrogs in this area were tricky because they all were in the heavy cover. They're all in overhead cover. So you got this giant marsh, and there's no all the bullfrog calls. You think like, all oh, the marsh full of bullfrogs. They're all on the edge in the nastiest, thickest willows and shit with a lot of overhead cover tucked under little things. And, and it's so thick you can't see anything. You can't see the end of the spear. So all you hear is that you're going toward a bullfrog in the night. Boom, boom, he's going off. And the only thing you hear is him spook. You know, the whole what was going through my mind the whole time, I'm saying, how's this going to look on camera when I jab Steve in the ass with this book? This is this gig. I said, maybe we'll get in there too deep. But that was pretty much of a trick, too, is, is having that, that gig, 12-foot gig. Yeah. And then then the, the tallest cameraman was right behind me, Adam, and I was bopping him in the head all the time. So I had Steve. I couldn't couldn't manipulate it there. So it was Something pretty tough. big splash in the water, too, coming towards us. That was never identified. I, I, I a raccoon or an otter or something. Coon or an otter. Down there, yes, uh, cotton, but uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. mouth, cotton mouth, so big you can't even be quiet anymore. He just breaks a cotton mouth that breaks. You know, we waited through there all night. We didn't see one water snake, you know, which I thought we would have seen some water snakes in there, and I had zero bug. Uh, repellent on none. I heard a few mosquitoes kind of buzz my. Um, ears and stuff but no swarm i think y'all wore a little bit of bug repellent and did anybody really get mosquito no, bit no not there no you know you, are you, you trying try to sell this place no <laughs> <laughs> i'm selling list price pleasant area <laughs> pleasant area but but huh. the, the misconceptions of a swamp oh you, totally. you know when you when you've got a ecosystem that's in balance everything is pretty much taking care of itself the the fish and the frogs you know we saw lots of small bait fish swimming around they keep the mosquitoes in check down there it's, it's not not bad now 
We had all kinds of small frogs, a uh, green tree frog, uh, the bird voice frog, and, um, you know, it's just uh, one of those places. It's just very unique. It's a go. nice little patch. Deafening. Yeah. When yeah. those frogs get going, yeah. loud. it's like loud like the it's loud like the jungle, man. Like yeah. the Bolivian jungle, yeah. yeah. It definitely yeah. reminded me. My, my full moon calculation was off by about by 15 minutes or so, but when the full moon did get up, then the whole chorus started. You know, the whole swamp became alive. You know, owls in the background, all the frogs, the insects, you know, so it's yeah, it uh, loud. very special place. So, Kevin, very concluding special. thoughts? Well, when you boys come to town, it's like hunting and fishing boot camp. <laughs> I go back. I feel like I'm, you know, you say 12 years old, but I didn't have my driver's license. So I'm say 16, you know, out prowling around doing what I want to do. You know, and that's why I spent uh, almost 30 years in utility business. I had the opportunity to retire early, and I'm still very fit and can get out and prowl around with you guys. And uh, I enjoy y'all coming down, and it's just like a new adventure. You know, I just the way I was always raised, I always wanted to go up this creek, down this river, whatever, and uh, like showing you guys around, showing you different hunting techniques. Uh, we eat good, cook good food. You know, there's lots of really good sportsmen out there that's more than killing like i said they like being outdoors to see what goes on so it's a, a pleasure when you guys roll into town well thanks for having us yeah there you have it the great kevin murphy thank you kevin you're welcome take care hey if you follow wildlife news at all you're probably aware that the island of maui has an incredible abundance of axis deer so much so that they're causing ecological damage well maui nui venison is thinning out some of those axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door visit maui nui venison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com use promo code meat eater for 20 percent off your order this festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today.